The ACC baseball tournament gets underway today with Virginia, one of the league's hottest teams, while the Hokies, they're limping to the finish line a bit. UVA's lacrosse team has itself back in the Final Four, and we finally know a bit more about why Virginia fired its volleyball coaches and called off that season. We'll talk about all that and much more this week on Teal and Barber. Welcome in to episode 50 of Peel and Barber, the Richmond Times-Dispatch and Richmond.com's Virginia Tech, UVA, and ACC Sports Podcast. I'm Mike Barber, ACC beat writer for the paper, and joining me here, as always, my co-host, the 13-time Sports Writer of the Year and the Virginia Sports Hall of Famer, Mr. David Teal. David, how are you, sir? Good morning, Mike. I'm well. Hope you're the same. I am. I am. I've been a little bit nervous. I've seen one of those Xfinity internet trucks kind of cruising the block back and forth. So I'm hoping that at no point do they <laughs> disconnect me from the outside world. I always get nervous when I see their crews in the neighborhood. That's what the hotspot's for, right? Yeah, we have a backup plan. That's right. Now, we're hitting episode 50 today, which is very exciting and uh, kind of perfect because it comes right after 50-year-old <laughs> Phil Mickelson wins the PGA Championship. Uh, that's lefty's sixth major. David, we've seen athletes who've hung around too long, right? And their careers kind of, they end almost in a sad fashion where you really wish they had retired when they should have. Uh, guys whose careers end awkwardly, they're, they're wearing different uniforms and it just doesn't look right. We've also seen some guys, though, who keep plugging along and keep succeeding at a pretty high level. I'm curious, from your you know, lengthy time of doing this, do you have a favorite late career athlete success story? Well, the, the one that I, I couldn't help but think of my watching Phil over the weekend was Tom Watson at the British Open. I think it was 2009 when he was 59 years old and in contention throughout the weekend. And darn if he didn't lose a playoff to Stuart Sink. But oh my gosh, you know, to, to think that someone could have won a major at age 59, let alone 50, is just remarkable. And then I go back way into my youth in, <laughs> in, in Baltimore, and I was at the AFC championship game when the Oakland Raiders came to town to play the then Baltimore Colts. And Daryl LaMonica gets hurt, and in comes 43-year-old George Blanda. And he almost rallied the Raiders to the Super Bowl. He was already—he had already had a great season, not only as a backup quarterback, but kicking all these clutch field goals. And my dad, who at the time would have been, I don't know if he was quite 50, he might have been 50, or uh, he might have been in his mid-50s. He was just reveling in this like fellow old man of his out there on the football field. Yeah, it's, it's such a thing that you say that because it's such a different perspective. Like The thing I found myself thinking about were the athletes who introduced me as a young guy to the idea that old guys could get it done. Um, I, I think of Nolan Ryan when he was mm -hmm. pitching still with the Texas Rangers. And, uh, you know, I had seen and read and heard about Nolan Ryan from decades before. And there he was. Um, I remember when he threw the no-hitter with the Rangers. It was his, the seventh of his career. And it just changed kind of my perspective on, you know, when athletes, what, what, what age their careers are over. Uh, I thought about George Foreman 
when he fought Evander Holyfield, <laughs> and then it it seemed like such a um, almost a joke, and then the, he was so competitive in that fight and hung around and uh, sort of relaunched him for a whole whole another generation. Uh, and I thought about Jimmy Connors in 1991 at the U.S. Open, um, right as I was really getting into tennis, uh, and him having that such a memorable run for for a guy at that age. And uh, I imagine it's what kids right now probably feel about. Tom Brady and oh, see yeah. him succeed at that level. But right at some point, your mindset shifts from athletes are under 30 to athletes can do it into their 40s, maybe 50s. It's 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 interesting when something kind of wake, wakes you up to that idea. Hey, I ran a half marathon at 50. <laughs> well, you are my inspiration on multiple fronts, <laughs> including sports writing, but I won't be trying any marathons. So yeah, it is. It is, uh, it is amazing what people can do when, when they have the drive and uh, maybe also amazing what people don't do when they, when they lack the drive. So, uh, but yeah, I, I enjoyed did, did you watch, did you watch Phil? Did you get to spend some time in front of the TV? Not a whole lot. I was uh, on Sunday. I was up at Kings mill in Williamsburg at the LPGA event. And th- there were two TVs in the press room. So when I wasn't on the course, the uh, PGA was on the left-hand screen and the LPGA was on the right-hand screen. So we were, we were kind of uh, toggling back and forth with our eyes. Yeah. Now you, you covered a, a very different end of the spectrum from 50-year-old Phil. You covered a golfer 26 years old, if I'm not mistaken, and yes. claiming her first win on the LPGA Tour. Tell us about that. Yeah, Wei, Wei Ling Su from from Taiwan. She had, I believe, it was her 145th LPGA career start, and she she never won. Had several, had a handful of top ten finishes, including a fifth place here at, at Kings Mill in 2019 because there wasn't a tournament last year. And, you know, here, most of us thought that Jessica Corda, who was really kind of the star of the leaderboard, she's won six times on tour, that kind of that, that pedigree would rise on Sunday. But Sue was, was terrific, shot a final round, 68. It was the best score among the final seven groups. And she really held it together. And the, the thing that was striking, and I was, I was talking with Arthur Utley, yesterday, who for years covered golf for the Times-Dispatch and, and the news leader. And and Arthur plays and, and knows the game. And I was asking him, of all the times you've covered a professional tournament, especially on Sunday in the final group, have you ever sh- seen a four-shot swing on one hole? And he was, he was kind of racking his brain and said, no, but that's what we saw at Kings Mill on Sunday. Mariah Jatanagarn is standing on the 15th tee with a two-shot lead over Sue. She makes double. Sue makes eagle. And the tables are completely turned. So Sue goes to the 16th tee with a two-shot lead. It was crazy. Yeah, you know, it's I haven't covered a ton of golf, but generally it's hard to pinpoint the moment, right? It, it's, it's more about the round or the weekend or... Um, you know, a, a certain aspect of a player's game, you know, somebody putting better than they usually do. But it was interesting reading some of the coverage to see like there, there was this hole and all of a sudden you're like, okay, this is, this is like the era in the baseball game that turns things or the turnover mm-hmm. in the football game. It, it was the moment. And uh, yeah, you don't always get that when you're covering golf. No, you do not. But s- certainly had it there 
Sunday, and it was it was pretty cool, to, you know, to have you know they were limited w- with spectators, but Final Group had a had a good sized gallery, and they were they were making some noise, and that was really cool. And and Wei Ling's mom, who apparently travels with her for, to to most tournaments and speaks precious little English, but I kind of sidled up to her at the 18th green. And I was starting to try to ask her a question, but she just pointed to the green and she goes, my daughter. And I just thought it was so cute. She was so proud of her her daughter and it was just fun to watch. Well, they had limited crowds there, but David, they're going to be full capacity down in Charlotte for the ACC baseball tournament, which is uh, getting underway today. We're recording this Tuesday morning. First game getting underway right now as we speak. Uh, Virginia Tech and UVA are going to play this afternoon. It's a red hot UVA team, a slumping Virginia Tech team. They're in the same group for pool play, and then they're joined in that group by the top seed, Notre Dame. David, let's start with the Hokies, who with their home run hammer and their hot start. They were one of the best stories of the early spring. And uh, A month ago, there was talk that they could even be a, an NCAA regional host, but uh, Tech enters today. They, they've lost six in a row. They've lost 12 of the last 13. It's potentially taken them out of the NCAA discussion altogether. What's gone wrong for John Chef's club down in Blacksburg? Mike, you mentioned the home run hammer earlier this season. They've had very little use for for said hammer of late, I was I was looking at at their schedule. Number one, the schedule played a role here too because the, the Hokies' closing stretch was really challenging. But in Virginia Tech's last six ACC games, all losses three to Notre Dame, three to Duke. The Hokies scored eleven runs. Mm. They scored three runs in three games against Notre Dame. And that doesn't cut it at any level of baseball, certainly not college baseball, where you see more offense. So you've got an offense that was making national headlines going cold at the same time. And really, I thought what kicked off this slide, the back end of their bullpen, they really had some trouble finishing off some games that now, as we look at their resume, getting a couple of those games might have been huge. No doubt. I mean, Mark Berman, our colleague at, at the Roanoke Times, talked to John Sheff yesterday, and Sheff's take is they need to get out of pool play down in Charlotte, or they're not going to make the NCAA tournament. Yeah, it makes sense with with what's happened. It's it's a tremendous juxtaposition from from where they were. And you know, I, reading Mark's story, which we have up at, at Richmond.com right now, uh, he said they basically they want to hit, and the quote was hit the reset button. Yeah. Uh, there's still a lot of talent in, in this program. Freshman Gavin Cross was named first team all ACC. So this is a team that if they can get back to swinging it the way they were early, they could be interesting to watch down in Charlotte. They could. You know, they, they, they get UVA this, this afternoon. Cavaliers beat the Hokies two out of three earlier this season in Blacksburg, including that one blowout, what was it? 17 to one or 16 to one somewhere in that range. But this is only the second time that the Hokies and Cavaliers have met in an ACC tournament. So that's kind of cool. And the, and the pool play is, is so peculiar, you know, because you, you, you're in three team pools and you play the other two. And then if it's all one and one, then it's the top seed advances, so all signs point to, to Notre Dame uh, getting out of, of this pool, especially the way the Irish have played of late. Yeah, and they look legitimately excellent. Um, 
and the format absolutely does does help. And um, that's why this first game, and you know, it's not just the rivalry, it, it is so critical for both these teams. Virginia, you know, they kind of had the opposite arc of what we were just talking about with Tech. Uh, you know, they came into the year with, with a ton of hype. They were a top five team in, in the national rankings. Uh, people were talking about this being a college World Series level team. They had a pretty disastrous start, slow start to things, and it it looked like maybe their NCAA tournament slump would continue. Brian O'Connor's bunch, they, they haven't been to the NCAA since 2017, but Virginia got hot here on the back end, which is certainly the way to do it. They've won uh, four their last four ACC series. They're nine and three in those games. So, David, we just talked about what's gone wrong for Tech. What's gone right for UVA? Well, Mike, way to tee it up for me because we all know what the key has been for the Cavaliers, and that's my long-lost nephew, Kyle Teal. <laughs> Who, 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 by the way, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm joking. I, I wish we were related, but we're not. We're both from, both born in New Jersey. Both spell it the proper way with, with two E's. But he's leading the, the, the Cavaliers in hitting. I think he's over 300 still, having, having a heck of a season. But UVA, you know, in all seriousness, the Cavaliers found an ace. As a pit, you know, in in their rotation with Andrew Abbott, and they've got Stephen Shock coming out of the pen. You mentioned the back end of Virginia Tech's bullpen struggling, the back end of UVA's bullpen led by Shock as the closer has really been good of late. And and Shock's kind of the prototypical modern college athlete, right? He's a two he's a two time transfer. Started at Appalachian State, then to UMBC, and then on to UVA. It certainly worked out well for the Cavaliers, and I'm glad you you mentioned Andrew Abbott. You know, he's been good all year, but David, this this win streak, and I mentioned they've won four straight uh, ACC series. He's four and zero. He's won all four of his starts those Friday nights. Um, that's huge in college baseball. That Friday night start mm-hmm. to get you off on the get you off on the right foot from a momentum standpoint, sir. Absolutely, but to rest a bullpen, right? He's not a guy who's going to tax your bullpen because he's going deep into games. He's dominant. He doesn't put a ton of stress on your defense because he's a strikeout pitcher. Um, you know, he's striking out in the double figures every time he pitches. So um, his emergence from being a very good Friday night starter to being absolutely lights out uh, with the back end of the bullpen, uh, with the way Nick Kent has been swinging it. Um, th- those factors really make UVA intriguing if they can get out of pool play. But uh, I-, I think Brian O'Connor's bunch, I think they've they've done enough to get in the NCAs, but let's not talk too much about that because that's going to be the subject of this week's Take It or Leave It. Thank you, Mike. It is uh, Take It or Leave It. Virginia Tech baseball opened this season, as you said, red hot but they've slumped. UVA had a reverse path to the postseason. So take it or leave it. Both ACC teams from the Commonwealth will make it to the NCAA tournament. Uh, let's start with David. Guys, I'm going to I'm gonna leave it simply because I think John Sheff, or I know John Sheff, knows more about the tournament selection process than I do. And I don't see the Hokies getting out of pool play and making it to, to Saturday's semifinals. I was looking at the RPI uh, this morning. Virginia's 44. Virginia Tech is 58. 58's not a good spot to be in when you're looking to get an at-large bid to any NCAA tournament. All right. Thank you. Mike? 
Yeah, I, I agree. I'm going to leave it. You know, the funny thing is nothing's really changed about my opinion in terms of how many teams were going to go from three months ago. It's just which teams are going and who's staying home that, that's flipped. Um, you know, I, I think that Virginia Tech, I, I can't believe we're having this conversation. They, they were a lock for the postseason. They were so exciting to watch. And I really thought there was a good chance that a regional would be in Blacksburg and, and having covered one in Blacksburg, it's a lot of fun. And um, it's just flipped on, on its head entirely. I think UVA, um, sure, they'd like to win at least a game in pool play. Uh, it, w- it would solidify their situation, but I think they're in. And Virginia Tech, uh, like David said, I, I think other than a pair of victories that advances them, I don't I don't see how they make it. And I don't see that pair of victories. So I'm going to leave it. I, I think that uh, just one is going and it's UVA. Now, that's the... ACC baseball tournament going into the NCAA baseball tournament. College lacrosse has already got itself to its final four. Those games are going to be played this weekend up in Hartford, Connecticut. I'll be heading there to see UVA take on the top seed, North Carolina. Duke faces Maryland in the other semifinal. And David, as you pointed out to me, we almost had a bit of a history. If Notre Dame had found a way past Maryland in, in their very tightly contested uh, quarterfinal, which the Terps won in overtime, we would have had an all-ACC Final Four in lacrosse. Yep, and it would have been the first all-ACC Final Four, Mike, in any sport, and one of the rarities in, in college sport. Now, you often see a bunch of, or all four Pac-12 teams comprising the water polo NCAA semifinals. But the weird thing is the Pac-12 doesn't sponsor water polo. So those those teams play water polo in a different conference, in the same one. So they they, they often bogart all the spots in, in water polo. But that's much more of a niche sport than lacrosse. And back in, I think it was 2005, our good friend uh, Andy Fletterjohn, who works at the ACC and used to work at UVA, we were texting back and forth on Sunday about this possibility. And there were four teams from the Western Collegiate Hockey Association that made the Frozen Four back in 2005. And the eventual national champion was the University of Denver. And the sports information director was none other than Eric Bakker, <laughs> who, who, unbeknownst to our listeners probably, is now the basketball SID at the University of Virginia. That's amazing. And when you started telling that anecdote, I was wondering, I'm like, does this tie back in somehow to Bakker? <laughs> so it's interesting that that's exactly where it, it tied in. Now, all joking aside, it's really not surprising. I mean, the ACC and the Big Ten, um, their teams dominated the top 25 rankings for most of the year. Um, you know, Maryland used to be an ACC program, sure. so it's not like it's a far removed uh, fourth team. Um, you know, it, it and the ACC didn't hold its conference tournament this year. Right. Um, they they added some games to the regular season and declared the regular season champion their their overall champion. So in in a sense, Hartford is now hosting uh, what might have been the ACC tournament. We talked about baseball for Virginia. 
and the trajectory of, of the slow start and then really rolling here heading into the postseason. Lars Tiffany and this Virginia lacrosse team, maybe not quite as dramatic, but similar path, really. The slow start, rolling here in April. It started with the offense, David. The offense started sharing the ball a, a bit more. Um, players like Matt Moore, who, hey, Matt Moore can <laughs> score almost any time he's got the ball on his stick, but he became more of a distributor. And that really made the offense more potent. That led to Doc Aitken, who came back after trying to play football at Villanova, uh, him getting back into form. Colin Schellenberger, Connor Schellenberger, uh, local Charlottesville product, yep. uh, and the number one recruit in the nation his senior year at St. Anne's Belfield. He's really emerged as a star. He had six goals in, in the blowout of Georgetown. And now it's their defense that's really coming on here late. This is starting to feel a lot like Lars's 2019 team, which, oh, by the way, ended up winning the national championship. I agree. And that team, you know, had all those dramatic, just hair-raising finishes in in the NCAA tournament. You know, this one, the, the, the Bryant game was was closer than, than anticipated, and, and the Cavaliers prevailed by two. But my gracious, in the quarters... I mean, they just dismantled Georgetown, you know, by far the most impressive performance in the quarterfinals. I mean, the other three all went to overtime, but clearly not UVA. No, and you know, Georgetown it was becoming a trendy pick to win it all. The, the Hoyas were the fifth seed, but they had played really well of late. And uh, I think there was a sense that even though Virginia was the four and, and Georgetown the five, that um, you know Virginia could be in for a long day in that one. And it certainly it went the opposite. Now, Georgetown had an injury to their, their faceoff guy 30 seconds in um, that, that certainly factored into time of possession and, and things like that. But man, Virginia looked good offensively. It looked dominant defensively. Uh, in part because of the possession, but they've been better with their slides, better man-to-man. They, they've really found their personnel groupings, who, who to play when. Another interesting thing, though, about this team, and, and we've both had the chance to speak with Lars Tiffany, and, and if you've ever heard him speak, the, the guy's incredibly introspective. He's very thoughtful, and he's very open. He doesn't mind sharing what he thinks he's done poorly or, or would change. And he told me that after winning the 2019 National Championship, he went into 2020 with the approach, nobody mentioned it. Nobody talk about 2019. Never say repeat. Never say defend. Those words are banned. They're taboo. We're moving forward. And, and the theory made sense, right? You don't want to live in the past. You've got to have your eyes going forward. But he thinks he was too strict with that. And that instead of taking pressure off, it maybe put pressure on or took away some of the fun. And um, when the 2020 season was cut short, he actually spent some time coincidentally, with Georgetown's soccer right. coach, who had also won the national championship in 2019 and, and had taken a dramatically different ap- approach. Brian Weiss kind of told his team, like, yeah, we're, we are the defending champs. Let's let's enjoy that. Let, let's look at that as the next challenge, where Lars Tiffany showed his team just how rare it is to repeat as a champion. Brian Weiss went and found the cases where teams did win one, two, three, four titles in a row. And he said, hey, let's aspire to that. You know, like, okay, maybe we don't have that hunger to win that first championship, but don't we have a hunger to be like these programs? And Lars Tiffany told me, he said, I basically got a do-over. And this season, they've really embraced the idea that, hey, they are the last team to win the championship. Everybody is still, uh, to an extent, gunning for them. And they do have a chance to do something special and different than they did in 2019. Well, Mike, and f- for all 
the heritage and tradition of UVA men's lacrosse. One thing that the Cavaliers have never done <laughs> is repeat as national champions. And yes, there would be a, a two-year gap here, but with no tournament in, in 2020, it would, it would certainly qualify if, if Virginia is to prevail uh, th- this weekend in, in East Hartford. And it's interesting that you mentioned the Georgetown soccer coach going back and, and showing his team examples of programs that won two, three, four titles in a row. Well, I'm sure one of the programs he showed his team was UVA. They won four consecutive national championships in men's soccer under Bruce Arena. Yeah, it, it is hard to do, and it is a unique challenge. That, that's a thing that that really came through in, in that conversation, uh, both with Coach Weiss and with Coach Tiffany, was you know every team's path to repeating is different. Um, because did you bring back a lot of guys? Did you not? If in this case, did you have your year pushed back or, or, you know, pushed back an entire year because of COVID? And you bring up a great point. The, the connection between Coach Weiss and Coach Tiffany came through Dom Stargia, who led Virginia to four national titles in men's lacrosse. And Coach Weiss had reached out to say, hey, we want to talk about how do you try to defend a title? You've won four titles. You know, can we talk about that? <laughs> Coach Starge's reaction was, well, I won four titles and never defended successfully any of them. <laughs> so, but he said, I'd be happy to mine the topic. But, um, you know, the, and, and part of it was, hey, there is no formula. The one thing all three men agreed on was you should set aside the idea that you're defending a title. Because that title's won. That championship is yours. That banner is yours. It can never be taken away. And and all three of them agreed, you don't want your players carrying a burden of, hey, we don't want to screw up this previous accomplishment. That's not the case. Your championship is your championship. It's yours forever. And and what the shift was for Lars uh, that he kind of took from, from Georgetown and from some of these conversations was, hey, there's a chance to do something separate, something different. It isn't just winning another championship. It is repeating, and, and that's a whole nother challenge. And uh, I think his team's really embraced that. He talked about it being more fun, and this team, uh, watching them on the sidelines, watching them during games, they're having a lot of fun this postseason, and um, certainly that helps when you're winning, and as you referenced, uh, blowing out people like 14-3, to uh, as they did with Georgetown. But I think it makes Virginia very dangerous uh, as we all head up to Hartford. Well, it, it makes Virginia dangerous also, Mike, because so many of these players have that experience from two years ago. And when things get tense, as they inevitably will this weekend, they have that experience to lean on. And I think that's invaluable. Yeah, no doubt. And they also have the experience, David, against Carolina. This will be, and you brought this point up uh, on a call today with Coach Tiffany, this will be the third time these teams are meeting. They split in the regular season. Uh, Carolina won uh, in Charlottesville early in the year. Virginia went down to Chapel Hill, won 18-16 in, in a shootout-type game uh, later in the year. David, it, it doesn't happen often, and I believe, did you tell Lars that this is the first time in his career this he's doing this? That's correct. First time in, in his head coaching career, uh, 10 seasons at, at, at Brown, and then uh, since at, at UVA. And this is only the fourth time in, in UVA history that it's happened. And I believe it's the first time since, let me look at my notes here, Mike, real quickly, since 2010, when the Cavaliers played Duke three times. Now, back then, it was when they played in the regular season, the ACC tournament, 
and then met again in the NCAA tournament. As you referenced earlier, there was no ACC tournament this season, but ACC teams played one another twice in the regular season. So yes, this this will be the third meeting uh, with with Carolina. It's the first time ever that Virginia has played Carolina three times in a year, and you know clearly they're they're very familiar. It was interesting to to, to listen to to Lars because he, he was he was mentioning about how he he wants to lean on his players more than his coaches to develop the scouting report because they were out on the field in those two games. They've, you know, they've competed against Carolina. What did you see? What, what might we be able to tweak? So I I found that fascinating listening to him today. He he is great to listen to. And it was also interesting. You asked him about the idea of, of a rival and uh, he pointed out, Hey, you know, Virginia, Virginia tech, that's the rivalry. Virginia tech doesn't play lacrosse. Uh, so Carolina, uh, Duke, th- those schools sort of step in and, and become uh, on the lacrosse front, uh, the rivalry. And, and then <laughs> he told you an interesting thing about, I guess, his previous stop at Brown being in a similar situation. Yeah, he said we really didn't have a traditional rival at, at Brown. He said, you know, we wanted to beat Harvard and Yale, but they have each other. And, <laughs> you know, and, and nothing, as we know, nothing supersedes the, the, the Yale-Harvard rivalry in, in any sport. That's like Army-Navy. That's sacrosanct mm-hmm. uh, uh, up there in, in, in the north in, in the Ivy League. Uh, you know, you go back in, in Virginia lacrosse history, you can make the case back in the day that the primary rival might have been Hopkins mm-hmm. as, as a non-conference opponent or Maryland when, when the Terps were in. You know, and then recently Duke has had Virginia's number in, in men's lacrosse. So you wonder if, if you know, if especially if the, if the programs were to meet Monday for the national championship, how that would play in. Yeah, I think looking at the final four, uh, it's going to be a, a path of sort of rivalries because, again, we said three ACC teams, a Maryland program that regionally everybody's real familiar with and used to be in the ACC. So, um, yeah, other than, as you smartly pointed out to me, the potentially horrific traffic <laughs> on my way to Connecticut, uh, I'm yes. very much looking forward to, to this final four and I've come to enjoy watching lacrosse this season. So looking forward to that less fun story I had been working on. And, and it's been an odd story that we've been working on really for, for almost three months now. And it goes back to March when Virginia fired its volleyball coaching staff. It canceled the remainder of its season uh, at that point, calling off its final six matches. Sunday, I finally had a source confirm that part of this situation with the program uh, stems back to a trip to Miami in mid-March where players recorded uh, using their cell phones, a coach's meeting that the coaches were having in their hotel room. Um, now, my source would not go into the details of what was said, but it's obvious that what the players heard uh, didn't sit well with them. They came back to Charlottesville. They complained to the administration. Uh, they sent that recording to the administration. And shortly thereafter, the coaches were put on leave. A couple of matches were canceled. And two days after that, coaches fired and the rest of the season canceled. David, it happened quickly. It unraveled quickly. It took us a while to kind of get some of the backstory, but this is kind of an ugly one for Virginia. Well, it, it, it's unfortunate on, on so many levels, Mike, and it, there was a lot unanswered, but as, as I read your story and as I'm kind of envisioning what might have happened in Miami, 
that meeting among the coaches in a hotel room must have been very loud for the players to be able to hear clearly some objectionable language and topics. So to one, prompt them to record, and then two, for those recordings to be so clear and audible to the administration that they could certainly ascertain that these, you know, were, you know, these were fireable actions. And, you know, it's not the first time that you've heard about coaches, college coaches, running afoul of their bosses by misbehaving in some way on road trips with their team. And, and coaches have, have to learn that the standards to which they hold their players, they have to meet as well. And it seems clear to me that Virginia staff failed here. Not yeah. Virginia's administration, but their, their coaching staff here. Yeah, I think you bring up a, a really good point that I was actually just talking on the radio this morning about. If you're just, we all spend a lot of time in hotels in this job. Um, if you walk past a hotel room, maybe you hear something, maybe you don't. To be able to hear um, to the point that you say, I want to take out my phone and record this, it has to both be audible uh, at a certain level and it has to be unusual, right? Like if, if you walk by and they're talking about rotations or playing, time, whatever it is, a bunch of players aren't going to think we should record this. It has to be something outside the realm of, of the usual for players to think we need to grab our phones and and record this for posterity. Um, so that right there is a major red flag. Now, an interesting thing, according to my source, at least, who was who was one of these uh, fired staff members, the source said that in their termination letter, Virginia never mentioned the recording. They cited player complaints, uh, specific player complaints that maybe were discussed or illuminated by the recording, but that there were problems in this program between players and coaches, w whether right or wrong, these problems existed before the recording and, and it was not integral to the dismissal, which I thought found fascinating. Um, my source also made another point, which I asked, Hey, did you all want to keep your jobs? And my source said, you know, it would have been really hard to go forward anyway. The, the players heard everything that was said, the coaches knew, that the players had secretly recorded them and turned them into the administration. Um, it would have been really dicey, David, uh, to try to patch together a piece here between those two sides. This sounds like whether the coaches realized it or not, they, they had really lost their team on a pretty significant level. No doubt. Yeah. The, 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 the relationship was, was torched and it was not going to be rebuilt. It reminded me of a story from early in my career. I was covering the James Madison women's basketball team, um, and their head coach, Bud Shoulders, was placed on what they termed at the time a medical leave. And um, what we learned was that the players had essentially revolted and, and said they didn't want to play. And you had two separate things happening. You had an administration saying, are they right? Do they have a case? But at the same time, you had an administration more importantly saying, can this be fixed? Can this be patched back together? Um, you don't want the tail to wag the dog and that kind of thing. But in that case, um, they said, hey, regardless of what's going on, we're not going to be able to make this work 
because of wh- where you guys are at relationship wise. And that opened the door for Kenny Brooks to become the coach at JMU. He went off on a long, successful run there. Now is at Virginia Tech and, and doing well again. But um, covering this story reminded me of that, that regardless of the specifics and of what you determine, it's really hard when there's a fracture this significant for a program and a staff together to move forward. Especially during the season. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, th- yeah. think think how bad it has to be. We've heard season ends, and, and then you have some exit interviews with complaints. But yeah, you're right to, to to reach out in the season to say this 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 is too bad, and we need to address it. It's a big deal. Oh uh, no, it absolutely is, and uh, it it sounds like the, the the proper decisions were were made. Yeah, Virginia's gone and, and hired Shannon Wells, a former Florida assistant, uh, and that program is essentially looking uh, for a clean start. And speaking of hirings, firings, departures, and I, I know that we're in May, but it's always basketball when you cover the ACC. And uh, look at Virginia Tech, the coaching staff for Mike Young. And we talked last time about Chester Frazier and him going back to his alma mater. Uh, Mike Jones, a coach from DeMatha, has been added to the staff. Uh, Virginia Tech's now in that final group for a recruit from DeMatha. So David, what do you what do you make of the hire? How do you think it will impact the program? Well, a couple things, Mike. Number one, I covered Mike Jones when he played <laughs> in Old Dominion. And he was a really good player. I mean, he, he played at, at, at DeMatha for, for Morgan Wooten. And, you know, 6'5", shooting guard, and was part of the Old Dominion team that as a 14 seed, upset three seed, Kerry Kittles and Villanova in the first round of the 95 tournament. 89-81 in three overtimes. Whew. Just, just a, a a crazy good game that I believe, if memory serves, I wasn't there. I was at another site, but I believe it was in Albany, if if I'm re- recalling correctly. So that's number one. Mike Jones had game, <laughs> and he was the coach at Dematha, Mike, for 19 years. He succeeded Morgan Wooten. Dematha's only had two coaches in its history. First Coach Wooten and, and and then Mike Jones. So I was thinking, you know, it's almost like, not exactly, but Mike Young leaving Wofford. Mm-hmm. You know, he'd been there for so long and he'd had opportunities to leave, you know, not to the level of, of Virginia Tech. But Mike Jones had opportunities to, to leave to math. I mean, he coached Markel Fools there. He coached Victor Oladipo and w- was, was very successful. And it, it could have been a, a destination gig for him. But, you know, Mike Young reached out and th- this was an appealing uh, position to him. And, and you mentioned that the Hokies are now in the mix for Tyrell Ward, mm-hmm. who's a 6'7 um, wing, who's also considering Maryland and Georgetown and Indiana, LSU, uh, among some others. So, yeah, I, Mike Jones is very well connected, obviously, in the DMV. And that's uh, an area Virginia Tech uh, yearns to recruit. And it could be even more important because Christian Webster, another assistant on this team who has ties to that region, uh, we've been told, uh, sources have told me that that he's been in talks to possibly join the staff at Florida. Um, so there could be some some flux there for Mike Young, but but I think we agree that the the Mike Jones addition uh, could be one that that very quickly pays dividends for the Hokies. Agreed, and Mike Young has has been v- very clear in in talking to to us 
over the, you know, the couple of years he's been in Blacksburg. He wants his assistants to aspire to better positions. And he was very complimentary throughout of, of Chester Fraser and has, has been the same with, with, with his in, in entire staff, including Christian Webster. And I don't think Mike Young begrudges them at all you know, to, to, to look at, at other opportunities. I mean, as we mentioned before, Coach Fraser was going back to Illinois. That's home for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that there's a reward to that approach too um, because coaches want to coach for guys like that, right? Mm-hmm. Coaches want to go and say, hey, I want to go coach for Mike Young because I want to learn from him, right? But does Mike Young want to teach me or does I, do I have a role to play and, and that's why I'm there? And if people feel like, Hey, Mike Young is going to teach me. I'm going to learn from this veteran coach who knows his stuff, knows his X's and O's, knows how to run a program, but he's also going to be looking out for for my long-term career. And and you know, Mike Young knows he's not going to coach Virginia Tech for 50 more years and he doesn't want, you know, a guy like Chester Frazier or or Christian Webster to be an assistant for 50 more years. I think he hires guys that that have a future as possibly head coaches and yeah, he's happy to put them kind of on that path. Yep, no doubt, and and I agree. That's the, those are the kind of managers, bosses, however you want to describe them, whatever title they have. Those are the kind of people for whom you want to work. Yeah, it always brings me back to my first editor in Virginia, uh, Chris Simmons, who who has since passed away. But I remember talking to him about a job opening and. Um, he, he basically talked me out of taking a job and he said, look, he said, I want you to take the next best job you get offered. He's like, I just think that's a, a bad job. I don't think you should take it. And then it wasn't long after that I got offered uh, this job covering tech and, and now UVA for the Times Dispatch. And I was almost reluctant to go to him because I was like, okay, he talked me out of the last one. And I went to ask him about this job and he said, absolutely. He said, this is a good step. This is a good next job. And um, it gave me that appreciation for, hey, he really was looking out for me in both cases uh, when it helped him and honestly, when it didn't. So uh, you're right. Those are the best bosses to have. Well, Chris is, you know, and I'm I'm preaching to the choir with you, but Chris was such a good dude in so many regards. And uh, I, I knew Chris back in the day when I was a student in Harrisonburg. So we miss him dearly. We sure do. He was an excellent trainer of young journalists. And I'll always remember uh, he was the one who taught me, hey, I'd come back, I'd write a story and he'd say, did you ask this question? And I'd say, oh, I, I forgot to ask. And he'd say, okay. And there'd be a pause. He'd say, well, call back and ask. And I'd say, well, it, it's eight o'clock. And he'd say, well, you should have asked it the first time. And it, it definitely uh, helped tune my brain to, to things you don't want to leave an interview without. So uh, yes, appreciate and miss him and appreciate you all for listening. You can subscribe to Teal and Barber on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your favorite pods. And please consider supporting local journalism with an online subscription to the Times-Dispatch. You can find special promotional offers available at richmond.com. Today's show was produced by Dean Hoffmeyer. Teal and Barber is a podcast of the Richmond Times-Dispatch and Richmond.com. For David Teal, I'm Mike Barber. Thanks for listening. Be healthy and safe, and please join David and me again next time.